It's Thursday, August 6, 2020. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon, and tonight we present a review of William Leonard Picard's magisterial novelized biography, The Rose of Paracelsus, 2019. This 650-page masterwork is already considered literature by the academic community. Like Mallory's The Mort d'Arthur, The Rose was entirely written in prison. It recounts Picard's academic, scientific, and extra-legal career from the early 1960s until his arrest and subsequent imprisonment in, in uh, 2000. It is beautifully written, fast-paced, and well-structured. It is subtitled On Secrets and Sacraments, which aptly describes what it delivers. Picard was not only a psychedelic alchemist, he was also an intelligence asset, say researcher, for the Ivy League think tanks and indirectly for government agencies. So, conspiracy theory and even UFO buffs will be pulling quotes from the rose for the next decade. Picard connected with an international network of psychedelic alchemists and visited each in a world tour that reads like a James Bond adventure. Returning to the U.S., he visited his mentor, the venerable psychedelic sage, Sasha Shulkin, who warned him against the demonic cultist who inhabited an abandoned underground missile base used for an LSD laboratory and an orgiastic temple. But like a character in Richard Shaver or a Sax Romer story, Leonard Picard was lured into this hellish underworld where psychedelics were used to enslave and abuse young women. And because this cult had better government connections than Picard, he was set up to take the rap for their criminal activities. He was given two life sentences in federal prison. Fortunately, he has just been released, and we hope you will be listening to this broadcast. So, for all of us, turn on, tune in, and we'll learn what's under the rose. Now, reviewing this book is a challenge. Leonard Picard's The Rose of Paracelsus is a complex masterpiece of modern English literature and should require more than one reading to be fully comprehended. However, I have a weekly radio broadcast devoted to the hermetic arts and uh, current works in that field. So I had to settle for one reading of this magisterial work, and I hope to revisit The Rose on a future broadcast, hopefully with Maestro Picard as a call-in guest. So, with that disclaimer declared, let us proceed. The author used Thomas de Quincey's parable of Paracelsus and the Rose, as recounted by Jorge Luis Borges in his collected fictions, 1998, as his title, leading readers to suppose that his biographical novel has a similar message. Well, this is a fair assumption. In the original parable, the aged Paracelsus alchemical path has evolved from laboratory work into Kabbalistic mysticism. His legendary palmogenesis experiment 
resurrecting a rose from its ashes is actually a subjective magical vision, not a Cartesian physical reality. In the parable, Paracelsus refuses to demonstrate that this phenomenon to a would-be apprentice because the vision was subjective and the young man was not prepared to experience it. After the would-be student had departed, the old alchemist took up the ashes of the rose and conjured them into the vision of the flower which he alone could appreciate. In Leonard Picard's version of the Rose of Paracelsus, alchemical laboratory work has evolved into a Kabbalah of molecular chemistry and the invention and use of psychedelic agents, primarily LSD in its variations. And like old Paracelsus, Paracelsus's Kabbalah, the new sacraments produced and encouraged mystic visions. Allegorically, we might say that they have resurrected the rose. Now, before we get into the story, let's get into the author. William Leonard Picard could be described as an elite intellectual establishment insider. He was deputy director of UCLA's Drug Policy Research Program, but he was then arrested and in prison for manufacturing LSD. After prison, he spent five years as a Buddhist monk, and while meditating, he applied to Harvard and was accepted. He eventually graduated from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and had attended similar think tanks at Princeton and Stanford. While at Harvard, he traveled around the world investigating illegal drug trafficking and meeting psychedelic alchemists of a secret international network whose mission is to raise human consciousness for the new millennium. We should also keep in mind that Leonard is a romantic with a penchant for Victorian age literature. And like Haji Baba, he was always in love. And his writing style reflects this romanticism. Perhaps the best previous effort in self-fictionalizing is T.E. Lawrence's The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, 1922. Lawrence was also a romantic intellectual who became a dangerous insider. Now, the Rose of Paracelsus is nonlinear. And it's hoped that at some future time we may have an annotated edition with a timeline so we can put events and episodes in proper sequence. Conversely, the fictional format offers some privacy to the author so a rigid timeline might not be forthcoming. Well, let's summarize the story the way we have it. We begin at Eslan and Big Sur on the Pacific coast of California a favorite campground for the psychedelic community during the 1960s. It is a moonlit evening around the campfire when Leonard receives a visionary visit from a pagan goddess who warns him, they are coming for you. This vision segues into a meeting with the first of the six psychedelic alchemists of the international network who all have colors for code names, crimson, who is the network security specialist, joins him at the fire pit and gives him a drink of mango juice, which promptly induces an altered state, during which Crimson describes the network and their purpose and style of operation. This scene takes place while Leonard is attending Harvard's Kennedy School. It is an opener for the scenario of his quest to find and connect with the mysterious six adepts around the world. And as soon as 
as this is established, we backtrack to his time in the Zen monastery following his prison sentence. Zen is wonderful rehabilitation. He discovers the wonders of the calm mind and is healed from the ravages he suffered as a young poetic intellectual penned up with hardened criminals for five years. He is not only healed, he is disciplined both spiritually and morally. He applies for entrance in Harvard Medical School and is accepted. He specializes in drug addiction programs and is soon transferred to the Kennedy School, which is a prep for government service at the State Department and other agencies. It is one of several such schools which share reciprocity, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford. We are given a very enlightening and in-depth account of Harvard's Kennedy School and its students and faculty. We also learn about the traditions and history of this first American university. There are several very bright young women students in Leonard's class, and he follows their relationships with his male friends with almost too much intimacy. Sliding from first person to omnipotent narrative style to describe their love affairs, we are given the impression that he himself was romantically unconnected during his Harvard years. He later fell deeply in love with one of the European women in the International Psychedelic Network and apparently married her, or at least had a child by her, but this is part of the story that's obscured by the tragic events described at the climax of the narrative. Most of Leonard's travels and adventures with the foreign adepts of the secret network took place while he was still an undergraduate at the Kennedy School. He visited the capitals of Europe to meet with drug enforcement officials in his capacity as a drug policy researcher and consultant. The alchemical adepts would apparently know his itinerary and surprise him. He meets Indigo in Salzburg and is given a history of the six. It evolved from the 1960s Brotherhood of Love and had managed to acquire sufficient influence to continue clandestine operations worldwide. When he visits Berlin, he is contacted by Vermilion, an adept who specializes in psychedelic aphrodisiacs and who inhabits a huge estate. Vermilion has a pair of bisexual concubines called V1 and V2 who entertain their master and Leonard with exhibitions of lesbian love and individual tantric yoga sessions. Both the V-girls dress like fashion models and pose constantly, like the enigmatic Volnavia in Dr. Vibes, if you remember that film. Leonard encounters Vermilion and his harem again in Southeast Asia when they are accompanied by B3. This third siren takes a special interest in Leonard, and they form a bond. While in Burma, he gets her pregnant, and after they part company, Leonard writes her a series of poignant love letters, which she eventually sends back to him. I think that B3 actually could be better described as a, as a geisha, as a Japanese geisha girl who, who is also a Buddhist nun. <laughs> That's quite a combination. The scenes with Vermilion and the V-girls are certainly erotic, but they are nearly eclipsed by the adept Indigo's guided tour of the red light district of Amsterdam. 
This is like a Disneyland ride designed by Hermanus Bosch. But there again, we sense the author's sympathy for abused women and children. One of the problems thoughtful readers may have with this book is the obvious connection these psychedelic alchemists have with the people who produce and market more dangerous addictive drugs. As much as the author and his characters declare that psychedelics are actually curative of heroin and cocaine addiction, the networking connections between the two realms are obvious. Nowhere in the book does this become more obvious than in the account of the author's attempt to help reduce the sentence of an Afghan heroin dealer whom he had met in prison before he entered Harvard. The dealer's boss is a warlord in the north of Afghanistan who had 30 of Congressman Charlie Wilson's Stinger missiles left over from driving out the Russians. I'm assuming that that many of you have seen Charlie Wilson's war. You know what this is all about. Leonard wanted to trade four of the Stingers back to Ace Tomato Company. If you don't know what Ace Tomato Company is, you shouldn't be listening to this broadcast. In return for his friend's release, no deal. Even the warlord was out of favor, so all three Stingers probably went to Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. And as the Russians and the Americans subsequently learned, opium was Afghanistan's weapon of mass destruction. And as an analyst, Leonard had predicted the later opioid epidemics in the U.S. and in Russia. I'd like to make a footnote on the Afghan adventure. Leonard was not an agent of or a contractor for a tomato company. He was what is referred to as an asset. He was an analyst and an advisor. He was a Harvard student. And the disturbing thing about this incident is that it calls attention to the power and influence of these Ivy League government schools. It makes us shudder to think that the frat boys at Animal House had their fingers on the button. Remember, Animal House was created by the Harvard Lampoon. Perhaps we should put Harvard's Kennedy School on double secret probation. And if you've seen Animal House, you know what that's all about. Eventually, Leonard contacts the most informative of the six alchemists, Cobalt. Cobalt is a futurist and the revealer of the mysteries. Although he does not use the term creodynamics, he gives the impression that the network is a sort of a second foundation concerned with the manipulation of human progress. Their primary mission being the universal raising of human consciousness with psychedelics, leading to the evolution of a new human species. Compare this to the same vision in Dan Brown's Origin, where the new human is a cyborg advanced by implants, nanotech, and artificial intelligence. He is homo tacticus, where cobalt is predicting homo psychedelicus. I might footnote this with a plug for our hermetic hour. If you need to get a grasp on futurism, cleodynamics, and the foundation, we have lectures on these subjects in the archives. Just go to http colon stroke stroke www.blogtalkradio.com stroke the hermetic hour and go through the abstracts on file. Cobalt goes on to reveal a UFO contact. He describes a shutdown of the Internet. 
that caused a panic in governments worldwide, followed by a huge drop of highly encrypted data which no government agency or think tank was able to decipher. This is reminiscent of Philip K. Dix Vallis. Cryptologists even relate the code to ancient Sumerian clay seals. But finally, cobalt reveals that an ancient text is the key. Leonard wonders, is it the Bible, the Koran, the Popo Vuh? But then Cobalt hands him an old leather-bound copy of Pliny the Elder in Latin. Leonard thinks this is ridiculous until he discovers a cipher manuscript concealed under the end papers of the book, which launches another round of code-breaking. We are never told what the final revelation is. It is another of Cobalt's shaggy dog stories. Cobalt enigmatically suggests that the network may exist in multiple dimensions, parallel worlds, or Buddhist hells, or Shaver Simultain. But this is perhaps metaphoric. Leonard asks Cobalt what would happen if one of the six were arrested. Cobalt says that the network would shut down until the situation was rectified by Magenta, their sergeant-at-arms. At this point, almost on a psychic cue, Cobalt, like Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, senses a disturbance in the Force. He tells Leonard that the network's alchemist in America has been compromised and his laboratory stolen. It may have fallen into the wrong hands. Those of some charlatan or mountebank, he says. Later, Leonard finds that a huge quantity of the base chemical for LSD has been stolen along with the laboratory. He then asks Cobalt the final mystery. Who is the sixth adept? We have crimson, magenta, indigo, cobalt, and vermilion. Who's the sixth adept? Cobalt fixes him with a quizzical stare and chuckles. You really don't know? And, of course, the reader assumes that Cobalt is implying it's you, dummy. Obviously, there is a plot flaw here because Cobalt has just discovered that the American alchemist, and to be politically correct, let's call him Sepia, has had his operation hijacked and needs to be replaced. Now, this should have been known in advance to justify Leonard's appointment. And this does not jibe with Sasha Shogun's status as the ranking psychedelic alchemist in the United States, whom Leonard will have to consult before he attempts to recover the stolen laboratory. Well, at this point, Leonard has graduated from Harvard. He is a free agent, and he decides to follow the course Cobalt has laid out for him. He finds out about the mountebank who stole CPU's lab and chemical stock. The culprit is a minor drug dealer named Todd Skinner, who has no background in chemistry and only poses as a psychedelic alchemist. Skinner has acquired an abandoned Air Force missile silo, an underground base facility. He has Sepia's lab equipment, but more importantly, he also has a huge quantity of the chemical base for LSD. He needs a chemist. And before Leonard applies for the job, he must consult with the real number six, for America, that's Theodore Alexander Sasha Shogun. In the chapter on Leonard's visit to the farm, Sasha and Lady Anne's Northern California retreat, is one of the most evocative in the book, at least for this reviewer. It reminds me of my many visits to my mentor, Frederick Adams, 
and his lady Svetlana, who lived in similar surroundings, glorifying nature and spirituality. Sasha was indeed the patriarch of America's psychedelic community. He knew about Skinner and his activities. He advised Leonard to have no contact with Skinner. But Leonard, still concerned about the laboratory and chemical stock, which were network property and network responsibility, decided to check Skinner out. As Leonard takes the long drive through Kansas on his way to meet Skinner, he intersperses the journey through the plains with recounting his love letters to B3, which he has returned. Leonard is a romantic, and I suppose all romantics, including myself, while write love letters at some point in their lives. These are beautiful, and one of them at least is delightfully erotic. From a structural point, I suppose placing them before the horrific episodes with Skinner is good contrast. He calls the chapter Pool of Tears, followed by Legion, the Many Demons of Magoth. And that's Skinner's, uh, that's Skinner's familiar spirit. And Goddardameron, the Twilight of the Gods, and that was the, the you know, um, Leonard's arrest. The chapter on meeting Skinner is structured like a series of interviews, some in, in Las Vegas and others in Kansas. Leonard quickly determines that Skinner is crude, uneducated, with no background in chemistry. He affects a cowboy style and claims to be the heir to an industrial spring manufacturing fortune. Although Leonard suspects Skinner is mentally unbalanced, he still agrees to go into business with him. The rest of the interviews segue into accounts of Skinner's sadomasochistic orgies and his drug-induced abuse of women in cult rituals dedicated to the demon Magat a demon from the German Book of Abramelin, noted for his large number of subservient spirits. Leonard subtitles this chapter an apologia, and it, uh, and it should be because he obviously witnessed what he was describing. But to his credit, he was very sympathetic to Skinner's victims and tried to help them. But the end was coming. Skinner was living on borrowed time. He was suspected of several crimes he could not cover up. He had a long history of avoiding prison by ratting on his associates in drug cases. He had acquired a privileged status as an informant with the law enforcement agencies. Like Whitey Bulger, he thought he had a license to do anything he wanted. But at this point in time, Skinner knew he would have somebody to cover for his crimes, and he gave them Leonard. Leonard received two life sentences in federal prison. He has just been freed last month on a compassionate release following many appeals. Skinner's get-out-of-jail-free card expired shortly after Leonard's arrest. He is still serving a life, a life sentence in federal prison. In closing, we would like to refer our listeners to Leonard's website, therosaparacelsus.com. And we'd recommend his book, The Rose of Paracelsus, which can be ordered from Amazon.com. And that concludes the review. This book deserves a second uh, Hermetic Hour show, frankly, to tell you the truth. As I said, it deserves a second reading just to just to, to understand it. But what I would like to do, because we have we have time, I would like to read Jorge Luis Borges's the Argentinian writer, I'd like to read his version of The Rose of Paracelsus, which uh, he got from uh, from De Quincey, the 19th century uh, writer that, that started off the whole 
recreational drug thing with a book called uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. And, and, uh, and, and, and one of, and Quincy, De Quincy was an essayist, and he had his own version of this, uh, this Rose of Paracelsus, and that's what Jorge, Jorge Louis Borges uh, used in his, in his version of it. And uh, Jorge Louis Borges, by the way, is we, we ought to do a, a Hermetic Hour show just on, on some of his, his works because uh, they're really they're, I know uh, Leonard was very, very influenced by them. And, and, uh, and so let's, let's, let's read uh, The Rose of Paracelsus. Hang on. All right. Down in his laboratory, to which the two rooms of the cellar had been given over, Paracelsus prayed to his god, his intermediate god, any god, to send him a disciple. Night was coming on. The guttering fire in the hearth threw irregular shadows into the room. Getting up to light the iron lamp was too much trouble. Paracelsus, weary from the day, grew absent, and the prayer was forgotten. Night had expunged the dusty retorts and the furnace when there came a knock at the door. Sleepily, he got up, climbed the short spiral staircase, and opened one side of the double door. A stranger stepped inside. Two was very tired. Paracelsus gestured toward a bench. The other man sat down and waited. For a while, neither spoke. The master was the first to speak. I recall faces from the west and faces from the east, he said, not without a certain formality, but yet yours I do not recall. Who are you, and what do you wish of me? My name is of small concern, the other man replied. I have journeyed three days and three nights to come into your house. I wish to become your disciple. I bring you all of my possessions. He brought forth a pouch and emptied its contents on the table. The coins were many, and they were gold. He did this with his right hand. Paracelsus turned turned back to light the lamp, and when he turned around again, he saw the man's left hand held a rose. The rose troubled him. He leaned back, put the tips of his fingers together, and said, You think that I am capable of extracting the stone that turns all elements to gold, and yet you bring me gold. But it is not gold I seek. And and, and and if, if gold is what interests you, you shall never be my disciple. Gold is of no interest to me, the other man replied. These coins merely symbolize my desire to join you in your work. I want you to teach me the art. I want to walk beside you on the path that leads to the stone. The path is the stone. The point of departure is the stone. If these words are unclear to you, you have not yet begun to understand. Every step you take is the goal you seek. Paracelsus spoke the words very slowly. The other man looked at him with misgiving. But, he said, his voice changed. Is there then no goal? Paracelsus laughed. My detractors, who are no less numerous than imbecilic, say that there is not, and they call me an imposter. I believe they are mistaken, though it is possible that I am deluded. I know there is a path. There was silence, and then the other man spoke. I'm ready to walk the path with you, 
even if we must walk for many years, allow me to cross the desert, allow me to glimpse, even from afar, the promised land, though the stars prevent me from setting foot upon it. All I ask is proof before we begin the journey. When, said Paracelsus uneasily, now, said the disciple with brusque decisiveness. They had begun their, their discourse in Latin, and now they were speaking German. The young man raised a rose into the air. You are famed, he said, for being able to burn a rose to ashes and make it emerge again by the magic of your art. Let me witness that tragedy. I ask that of you, and in return I will offer up my entire life. You are credulous, the master said. I have no need of credulity. I demand belief, the other man persisted. It is precisely because I am not credulous that I wish to see with my own eyes the annihilation and the resurrection of the rose. You are credulous, Paracelsus repeated. You say that I can destroy it. Any man has the power to destroy it, said the disciple. You are wrong, the master responded. We believe that something may be turned to nothing. Do you believe that the first Adam in paradise was able to destroy a single flower, a single blade of grass? We are not in paradise, the young man stubbornly, stubbornly replied. Here in the sublunary world, all things are mortal. Paracelsus had risen to his feet. Where are we then, if not in paradise, he asked. Do you believe that the deity is able to create a place that is not paradise? Do you believe that the fall is something other than not realizing that we are in paradise? A rose can be burned, the disciple said defiantly. There is still some fire there, said Paracelsus, pointing toward the hearth. If you cast this rose into the embers, you would believe that it has been consumed and that its ashes are real. I tell you that the rose is eternal and that only its appearances may change. At a word from me, you would see it again. A word, the disciple asked, puzzled. The furnace is cold and the retorts are covered with dust. What is it that you would do to bring it back again? Paracelsus looked at him with sadness in his eyes. The furnace is cold, he nodded, and the retorts are covered with dust. On this leg of my journey, I use other instruments. I dare not ask what they are, said the other man humbly and astutely. I am speaking of that instrument used by the deity to create the heavens and the earth and the invisible paradise in which we exist but which original sin hides from us. I'm speaking of the word, which is taught to us by the science of the Kabbalah. I ask you, the disciple coldly said, if you might be so kind as to show me the disappearance of the rose. It matters not the slightest to me whether you work with Olympics or with the word. Paracelsus studied for a moment, and then he spoke. If I did what you ask, you would say that it was an appearance cast by magic upon your eyes. The miracle would not bring you the belief you seek. Put aside then the rose. The man looked at him, still suspicious. Then Paracelsus raised his voice. And besides, who are you to come into the house of a master and demand a miracle of him? 
What have you done to deserve such a gift? The other man, trembling, replied, I know I have done nothing. It is for the sake of the many years I will study in your shadow that I ask it of you. Allow me to see the ashes and then the rose, and I will ask nothing more. I will believe the witness of my eyes. He snatched up the incarnate and incarnadine rose that Paracelsus had left lying on the table, and he threw it into the flames. His color vanished, and all that remained was a pinch of ash. For one infinite moment, he awaited the words and the miracle. Paracelsus sat unmoving. With strange simplicity, all the physicians and all the pharmacists in Basel say that I am a fraud. Perhaps they're right. There are the ashes that were the rose, and that shall be the rose no more. The young man was ashamed. Paracelsus was a charlatan or a mere visionary, and he an intruder. He had come through the door and forced him now to confess that his famed magic arts were false. He knelt before the master and said, What I have done is unpardonable. I have lacked belief, which the Lord demands of all the faithful. Let me then continue to see ashes. I will come back again when I am stronger, and I will be your disciple. And at the end of the path, I will see the rose. He spoke with genuine passion, but that passion was the pity he felt for the aged master, so venerated, so inveighed against, so renowned, and therefore so hollow. Who was he, Johannes Grisbach, to discover with sacrilegious hand that behind the mask was no one? Leaving the gold coins would be an act of almsgiving to the poor. He picked them up again and went out. Paracelsus accompanied him to the foot of the staircase and told him he would always be welcome in that house. Both men knew that they would never see each other again. Paracelsus was then alone. Before putting out the lamp and returning to his weary chair, he poured the delicate fistful of ashes from one hand to another, and he whispered a single word, and the rose appeared again. That's the story of the Rose of Paracelsus. And quite frankly, I... I think we we would have done a, a hermetic hour show just on the just on on uh, the, what I just read you, uh, even 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 if I hadn't uh, read, read Leonard's book, because that story is the whole the whole story of of, of magic, as, as Paracelsus tried to explain, his alchemy evolved finally evolved to visionary magic, and that was that was Kabbalah. And, and, of course, the formula uh, won't work unless you spend years uh, studying, you know, studying uh, Kabbalah and magic so that you, you can uh, make, do the visualization. I will explain that by saying that uh, the master Franz Barden wrote a book called The Key to the True Kabbalah. Now, I don't particularly want to recommend the book uh, because what, Franz Barden did was he took the Sefer zeal and took all of the the, the three-letter Kabbalistic formulas in the Sefer zeal and he, he translated them into German, into the German alphabet. And so uh, it, it's a bit cumbersome for, uh, you know, for American and, and British uh, students. 
But what's important in Barden's book, The Key to the True Kabbalah, is, is the pronunciation of the fourfold name. And what Barden explains is the pronunciation, and that pronunciation of the fourfold name by which, uh, by which creation was, was accomplished, which is a magical formula, it's called the Tetragrammaton. Uh, Barden explained that you take each, uh, each of the four letters and you visualize them in color, and you visualize them in the color scales of the four-dimensional worlds of the Kabbalah, because because the tree of life has uh, exists in, in 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 literally in four dimensions, and the formula descends. It descends through the dimensions and down through the tree. So if you wanna if you wanna use the fourfold name, the tetragrammaton, as a creative force you need to visualize while you're pronouncing it because you know this is the name that's not supposed to be pronounced except except uh, for very very uh, strong magical purposes so the true pronunciation of it it has to be visualized in, in, in color the letters in all four of the dimensions and then when you do that then you can use that as a creative formula and and that that explains the you know the word that Paracelsus was using, and uh, but it's not it's not just just the word. It's the whole process of magical visualization. It takes it takes at least at least three or four months of training before you can do it. And 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 Paracelsus really couldn't explain this to this to this uh, young man that came to him with the rose. He couldn't explain that. You know that that you're going to have to you're going to have to study in order to in order to do this you're going to have to study and 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 all. and he and he knew very well that the young man was credulous and and that he wanted a miracle in in in, in the case of Leonard uh, Leonard's uh, uh, version of this uh, they or psychedelic uh, drugs they become like the word you you take you take a psychedelic drug and and it allows you, those of us who have used LSD, and I will certainly admit that I have, you can you can stare at something, and and you will have waves of understanding, waves of perception. You'll see you will see a rose uh, uh, like you've never seen it before. You you could you could take you could take that rose and you could and 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 when when you when you when you, when you go up on an LSD wave and you're looking at that rose, uh, it's going to it's going to show you more about that rose than you ever knew existed. And and uh, and or or any design, uh, uh, you you get more and more and more and deeper perception, and so. You know, in Leonard's interpretation of, of the Rose of Paracelsus, the psychedelic drugs open up the magical vision. They they open up the uh, well, what we probably what we would properly call mystical vision, because uh, magic magic is uh, uses uses will and 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 agents and 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 whatever. And mysticism is 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 it, uh, you know usually comes. Either from from prayer or meditation and or both, and and uh, so what we what, what I think the best way to put it is that that LSD opens the gate for lots of people and and 
uh, Francis Rigardi, who was one of my teachers, uh, wrote a book called Roll Away the Stone. And that was basically, I mean, he wrote that primarily about hashish, but 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 basically uh, uh, LSD and, 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 and hashish and, and various strong uh, psychedelic drugs will have a tendency to open the magical gateway for you and and uh, raise your consciousness. And so they are. They are in, in, from from Leonard's perspective. That's uh, in the Rosa Paracelsus. That's the Kabbalistic word. Is is the psychedelic. And uh, so with that understood, and and as I oh oh let me let me also mention another aspect of this. Uh, the anthropologist Franz Boas tells a what I think is a true story, which is a very, which is a parable similar to the Rosa Paracelsus. And Franz Boas did, did his anthropology back way back in the turn of the last century, uh, up uh, with the uh, with the North Coast Northwest Coast Indians, you know, totem pole, the the, the ones that make the totem poles and catch the salmon. <laughs> and uh, and Boas spent years studying their you know, their customs and, and all. Boaz tells the story about the young, the young Northwest Coast Tlingit uh, young man who was apprenticed to a shaman, an old shaman, and the old shaman was teaching, teaching the, the, young, the young man to take to take over his practice. He was getting old, and uh, the old man was very revered by the tribe, but but he was not. He was not what what is referred to as a sucking shaman. He did not suck tumors out of people or or uh, or suck poison, you know, suck some sort of uh, infection out of people as some shamans did. And and uh, there was a shaman in a, in another tribe across the river that that was doing that and was having getting very famous among the among the Northwest Coast Indians and this sucking shaman that was doing this sort of thing. And uh, the young man asked the old man, asked his old master about that. And the old shaman said, well, he said, you know, I, uh, I'm not saying that, you know, that he's not, not, not accomplishing things, but I don't do it that way. So the young man left him. He left his old master and went over to the sucking shaman and, and apprenticed with him. Well, of course, after he'd been apprenticed to the old man with a new with a new sucking shaman for about a year, he discovered that the sucking shaman was a fraud. He was putting chicken livers in his mouth, and he'd go down and he'd go down and and, and get on down somebody's stomach and and suck and suck and suck and suck and suck and then spit out a chicken liver, and, and everybody was oh look what he did, you know. And so he realized that the that that the, 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 the sucking shaman was a fraud. And so he went back to his old master. But unfortunately, by the time he got back to his old master, the old master had passed away. And that that was Franz Boaz's story, which is, as I say, similar to De Quincey and Borges's version of the Rosa Paracelsus. Paracelsus was not going to do a sleight-of-hand trick. Without at least a year of training, the young man would not be able to see the rose. So Paracelsus knew that, and of course, 
I, I know that as 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 a magician, and Franz Barden know, knew that. You know, I I, I turn students away. I, I, I that that want me to perform some kind of a Cartesian physical miracle for them. That so that is that is uh, the, the meaning of the of the, uh, the Boaz story, and also uh, the same meaning as the Paracelsus story. Anyway, next week we'll be back. 